Today is the second Sunday of Advent, which is that four-week period prior to Christmas when we prepare our hearts for that great event. One of my favorite Advent stories about a man who he just became disgusted with all the commercialization of Christmas season. And he said, I'm not going to have anything to do with it anymore. I'm going to rebel. So he did not put up a Christmas tree. No decorations were put up around his house. And he said, I'm not going to send any Christmas cards. People don't read them anyway. It's a waste of money and time. Not going to do it. And for about the first week of December, he felt really good. Trouble was, with every day and the mail that came, bringing cards and thoughts from friends all over, his guilt increased about not sending any cards. Finally, four days before Christmas, he could stand it no more. He raced down to the drugstore. Only one box of cards left, 50 cards. Bought it, bought a bunch of stamps, raced home, and that evening, he just addressed with fury all 49 cards. Had one left over, flipped it up on the mantle. Raced down to the post office, mailed it, and he felt really good. The next day, he's walking through the house, and he notices that card up on the mantle. And he thought to himself, you know, I did all that addressing so rapidly last night, I never read the message inside the card. I really ought to take a look at it. The message inside the card said, this cheery card has come to say, a gift from us is on the way. Now, that man was so distraught, he failed to notice that the message of that card is the essence of Advent. A gift from us is on the way. A gift from us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is on the way. The greatest gift ever given in history was a helpless baby sent to a peasant Jewish couple. And the angels who announced the birth of that baby focused on one blessing that he would bring to people of all generations, and that gift is peace. How desperately we need peace today. One month ago, I thought, as soon as this election is over, maybe peace will come to America how naive can you get? I mean, riots broke out in the cities and people calling for recounts. Those of us old enough to remember the Cold War thought that when the Soviet Union fell, as it did, then maybe peace would descend upon the world sort of like a gentle rain. It didn't happen. And today, Russia and the United States are adversaries. Some Americans have assumed that if our country could produce enough wealth and spread it around, ah, then blessed harmony would prevail from sea to shining sea. No, it hasn't happened. And you take a, a prosperous, relatively prosperous state like New Hampshire, and what is that state experiencing today? An epidemic of drug addiction. No peace. 
And why, even with a biracial president, are America's race relations so contentious? On the international front, smartest people in the world have been working for decades to bring peace between Israel and the Palestinians. Don't have it. All we have are simmering temporary truces between outbreaks of violence. And even though America has invested a vast amount of blood and treasure to bring peace to the Middle East, militant Islamic terrorism has metastasized like cancer and spread across the world. In this Advent season of 2016, the desperate need is peace. I think that's the first blank you fill in in your bulletin. But peace is not a human achievement. There's no politician smart enough to deliver peace. There's no military that will ever be strong enough to enforce peace. Peace, real peace, is a gift. And Advent and Christmas remind us that peace is God's gift received by faith. Now, God revealed his peace program 700 years before the birth of Jesus to a prophet named Isaiah. And that peace program centered on a baby, a royal child, God's own son, who would be so great that it would take four titles to describe him. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, Prince of Peace. And that last title, Prince of Peace, suggests that the coming Messiah would be the key to peace. When the Prince of Peace was born in Bethlehem, no kings were invited to his birthplace, no potentates, no princes, no bishops, no aristocrats. No. There was just one invitation, and it was delivered by angels to some lower-class shepherds watching over their flocks near Bethlehem. And in that day, shepherds were despised by the religious leaders of that day because they couldn't keep all those Jewish rules and regulations because minding sheep, particularly large flocks of sheep, is a 24-7 job. But God did not seem to mind God has a soft spot in his heart for those on the lower rungs of the world's totem pole. God's angelic messengers gave to the shepherds not only news about where Jesus would be born, but also the meaning of this awesome event. The angel said, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. And the Hebrew word for peace is shalom, S-H-A-L-O-M, shalom, which means blessedness or completeness. And this peace is not showered like rain that falls on the just and the unjust alike. Jesus said his peace is totally different from the variety that the world tries to distribute. And in my new international version, this peace is said to be for men on whom his favor rests. But I really think the best translation of this verse 14 of Luke 2 is this. This peace is for men and women who are recipients of God's grace. 
Whereas this peace is available for everybody, the only way to receive it is by faith. Now, the gift of peace has three steps. It begins with peace with God. Did you know that none of us is a born peacemaker? In fact, if the truth be told, in our natural condition, we are closer to selfish troublemakers. Why? Because all of us come into the world with a sin heritage. It's in our DNA going all the way back to Adam and Eve. Even King David, who was called a man after God's own heart, confessed, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. My wife and I brought two little baby boys into the world. Well, to be quite honest, my wife brought two baby boys into the world. I was strictly in a support capacity. Since my wife is in the congregation, I need to make that absolutely clear. And we thought they were just about perfect. And we were nothing but devoted and loving parents. Never did anything for them but what was in their best interest. Maybe they were different from your kids, but I doubt it. When they were tiny little things, they shook their chubby little fists in our face in abject rebellion. They didn't like our agenda. Did you know we had to insist that they share? They didn't want to share. But we never had to teach them to be selfish. They knew all about that. It was in their original makeup. Since we are not naturally peace-filled, how in the world do we get peace with God? Jesus said you must be born again. That is, you must get new hearts in you from God. And we cannot manufacture those new hearts. The Holy Spirit is the obstetrician of new birth. But we can place ourselves in a position where it's likely to happen. How? Two steps. One, by repenting of our sin, by just admitting to God, I'm a sinner and I can't fix it. And secondly, then, by trusting that when Jesus died on that cross, he did it for me and you personally, and that God raised him from the dead and he's alive now, and by inviting the living Christ Spirit to rule our lives. Those taking those two simple steps by faith puts us in the bullseye of God's grace. And God is faithful to perform that miracle of new birth. Once we have peace with God, we're ready for the second step, peace with self. Most of us, deep down, are very critical of ourselves. And I found that's even true of boastful people. Most braggarts I've known across the years are really trying to cover up their own lack of self-confidence, their own lack of self-worth by putting on a front. Most of us know how selfish we can be. If you're not sure, ask your spouse. And if you don't have one, ask a truly honest friend. And they'll tell you. Our capacity to tell lies 
Now, we call them little white lies, but they're not little and they're not white. Oh, yeah. And did you know that we can rationalize almost anything we want to do? We have a devilish capacity to come up with reasons why it would be a good idea. St. Paul spoke for all of us, and especially for golfers, when he said in Romans 7, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Wretched creature that I am. Yes. My sister lives in Williamsburg, Virginia. And if she were to call me tonight and say, Bill, guess what? I've gotten a big promotion and it carries with it a great salary increase. And I just want you to rejoice with me. 95% of me would rejoice with her. Yeah, there's another 5% in there. Yeah, there's another 5%, and it would whisper things to me like, is her family going to become more affluent than your family? Is she going to be perceived as more successful than you? I've got that 5%, and you do too. And that means that we're sinners. Yes, we are. But here's the good news. When I repented of that sin and trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, he performed a spiritual heart transplant. He installed his Holy Spirit and began to transform my heart and mind, and he declared that I am brand new, an adopted child of God. Talk about status. It doesn't get any better than that. In Marianne Bird's book entitled The Whisper Test, she tells about her unhappy childhood. She was born with a cleft palate. And when she got into school, the other children would make comments about her misshapen lip and her garbled speech. And she was convinced that nobody outside her family could love her. And then in the second grade... Her teacher, Mrs. Leonard, and sometimes teachers can be such agents of God. Mrs. Leonard said something that changed her life. It was during the annual hearing test. And you folks who are not as old as some of us will not remember what a hearing test used to be before the scientific paraphernalia came into play. Back in the old days, the annual hearing test each student would go and stand at the door, facing the door, and put one hand over one ear. The teacher at the desk, in a normal tone of voice, would, would state a sentence, just say something. And the student was supposed to repeat it if he or she could hear it. And usually the teacher would say something like, uh, the sky is blue, or don't you have new shoes? But when Marianne was standing at the door, Mrs. Leonard said seven words that changed her life. She said, I wish you were my little girl. Jesus says to each of us believers something much more wonderful than that. He says, you are my adopted child and don't you forget it. 
Oh, yes, we have rooms of imp much improvement to make in ourselves. Goodness knows, we, we have weaknesses to overcome. We need to take steps to go on to perfection, as Mr. Wesley said, to become more Christ-like. Oh, yes, but we must never belittle ourselves. If you have a tendency to put yourself down, stop it. If you sometimes think of yourself as a hopeless failure, stop it. If Jesus Christ has saved you, he has hung a price tag round your neck and it reads priceless. So be at peace with yourself. Now, once we have peace with God and peace with ourselves, we're ready for the third step, peace with others. Once we receive the gift of peace from God, we are equipped to spread it. The Christ in you can touch other people in redemptive ways. Wherever we are, our task is to establish beachheads of peace in a hostile world. St. Paul described our mission this way. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Around Alberta, Canada, there is a small city whose name, ancient Indian name, literally means the Hills of Peace. Many, many years ago, it was the scene of bitter battles between two violent, antagonistic Indian tribes. There was a young chief on one side who was a violent warrior. And then he was converted to Christianity. And Jesus took up first place in his heart. Not long thereafter, his own father was killed by the rival tribe, the Blackfoots. In a fit of rage, this young chief rode into the middle of the Blackfoot village and demanded that the man who had killed his father should come forward. Finally, an elderly Blackfoot warrior stepped up and admitted the deed. And that young chief, with quivering muscles and tears in his eyes, stared into the eyes of this Blackfoot warrior uttered a silent prayer and then said this, you have killed my father. Now you must be my father. You will wear my best clothes and ride my best horse. And the Blackfoot warrior stared at him in utter amazement, fell to his knees and said, my son, your wisdom and gentleness have killed the warrior in me. The Christ within us can kill all that is vindictive and mean in ourselves and other people. He can show us the true value of even our worst enemy. Then we're prepared to go forth and reconcile all people in the name of the Prince of Peace. It's time for peace in America. It's time for peace in South Carolina. It's time for peace in Lexington. And we Christians are supposed to be at the vanguard of the peace movement. The first step in becoming a peacemaker 
is to make sure that you have repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. The second step is to accept your new status. You are an adopted child of God and absolutely priceless. And the third step is to be a peace distributor, or as St. Paul described it, an ambassador for Christ. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. A Christian peacemaker is unique. A Christian peacemaker listens to other people with both ears. Christian love is often expressed by good listening. A Christian peacemaker knows how to say, brother or sister, I respect your view, but you and I are just going to have to agree to disagree. A Christian peacemaker knows that 10 words of testimony are worth more than 100 words of argument. A Christian peacemaker knows that silence is sometimes the best response when anger is boiling over. A Christian peacemaker refuses to write off any person as worthless. A Christian peacemaker knows that nobody is beyond the reach of the Savior's love. There's an old Quaker calendar that describes our task as peacemakers. And the words of that calendar are going to appear on your screen, and I want to invite you to say them out loud with me. When the song of the angels is stilled, when the star in the sky is gone, when the kings and princes are home, when the shepherds are back with their flocks, the work of Christmas begins to find the lost, to heal the broken, to feed the hungry, to release the prisoner, to rebuild the nations, to bring peace among brothers and sisters. I'm now going to offer a one-sentence prayer, and I'm going to pause halfway through it so that if your heart agrees with this prayer, you can repeat it silently after me. Let's pray. Lord, fill me to overflowing with your peace and make me a more effective peacemaker in 2017 than I have ever been before. Amen.